Welcome to the eighth episode of Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight we brave Room 106, the chamber of horrors into which all new planning information is dumped, and extricate the key things you need to know. The podcast is called Room 106 after Room 101, the chamber in George Orwell's novel 1984 that contains a prisoner's deepest fears. We're suggesting that, for ourselves and for some of our audience, the prospect of getting your head round a new policy announcement or court decision can awaken a sense of dread. It's called Room 106 instead of Room 101 in honour of the protracted Section 106 negotiations that can take place when councils are trying to agree how much developers should pay for infrastructure. So, coming up, the key news stories of the past fortnight or so and why they might be important for you. We'll be looking at the stripping of planning powers from Uttlesford District Council and the potential wider implications. Plus, why Basildon Council is withdrawing its local plan and what that means. In the deep dive section, I'll be speaking to our regular correspondent David Blackman about what the appointment of Stuart Andrew as planning minister means for the sector. By the end of the show, you should know enough not to fear your boss cornering you at the water cooler with awkward questions. So, time to face the music. Ready to go in, John? I guess so. Well, here we are again in room 106, the repository in which all new planning information collects. It looks fuller than ever. Yes, looks like it's been topped up again. Anyway, John, what's the really important things that have caught your eye in the past fortnight? Well, one of the most well-read stories from the past fortnight is the news that Uttlesford District Council in Essex has been placed in special measures by the government due to the quality of its planning decision-making. So the Special Measures Programme is a a government programme to monitor and, if needed, penalise councils for their development management performance. It looks firstly at how quickly councils are determining applications and secondly, how many decisions are later overturned at appeal. And Uttlesford has been designated by the Housing Minister on the basis of its record of determining major planning applications. So in a two-year period, it saw just over 11% of its major applications overturned on appeal, which is above the government's 10% threshold for considering designation. And it's notable because Uttlesford is the first council to be designated by the government under the programme since early 2015. And the first ever to be designated for poor quality decision-making, I believe. Yes, that's right. So I understand that there were other councils, though, that performed just as badly or worse in this period, but weren't designated. Is that right? And if so, why was Uttlesford designated and not the others? Yes. So Uttlesford was actually one of five local authorities that exceeded the 10% threshold for the proportion of decisions overturned at appeal during the official designation period. And overall, is actually only the fourth worst performing council. So the housing department hasn't actually given us loads of details as to why Uttlesford has been designated and not the other councils. But they have said that councils, when the after these figures are published, that they can get in touch with the housing department if they feel the data is incorrect or if there are any special circumstances which explains why the figures were what they were and the government could take that into account when deciding whether to designate them. 
So it appears that the other councils that were under the um, the benchmark managed to persuade the government that there were good reasons as to why um, they performed the way they did, and the government accepted those reasons, but didn't in the case of Uttlesford. So do people accept that at face value, that maybe it's just that the others were able to make a case that Uttlesford wasn't able to to make, or do people suspect some other forces at work? So some of the people we've spoken to in the sector say it's probably not a coincidence that Uttlesford is run by a residence group, and it's one that has had a number of issues with plan decisions and plan making in the last couple of years. So um, in 2020, it was forced to withdraw its local plan after expectors raised concerns about it. And last autumn, a report by the Local Government Association found that its planning service was underperforming. So some commentators we spoke to say that it's significant that um, Uttlesford is not a conservative-led authority, that it's run by an independent party. But then on the other hand, some say the government is keen to send a signal out to local planning authorities on development management performance, given the concerns in the development sector over um, council decision-making and um, plan-making efforts. And, And clearly some of those concerns are shared by ministers. Okay, so there are some people who think it may just be that government finally wants to make an example of an authority that isn't performing well on its decision-making or the quality of its decision-making, but others suggesting that maybe it's easier for them to take a tough line with a sort of independent-led council than, for instance, one that is Tory-led. Yes, that's right. Do we now know that all the others who didn't perform well on quality of decision-making, are they now in the clear or has the government not said either way? So the housing department hasn't confirmed that when we asked that they won't designate any more councils under the quality of decision making criteria. But the local government association's planning advisory service, which is involved, which helps the government liaise with councils that are underperforming, they told us that that they didn't expect any more designations on the ground of quality. But of course, this is a the quality criteria is only one half of the program we've also got speed of decision making as well and when we asked the housing department about it they said that they've not yet taken decision on the authorities at risk of designation for speed of decision making okay so it is possible that we'll see some more designated because they've been too slow yes that's right and we looked at the uh, most recent government figures for speed of decision making and um we found that 13 councils are sitting under the threshold for that in the latest official two-year assessment period. So they could they could potentially face penalisation. Okay, so 13 more possibly in the firing line. What about the impact in Uttlesford itself? What impact is the move likely to have on planning and development in the district? Well, the council itself has said that they um, released a statement in response to the, the designation announcement, and they've promised substantial improvements to their planning service in the wake of this. And um, as I said earlier, they'd already had a report by the Local Government Association in the autumn, which found that the planning service was underperforming. So they've said that they've already spent money on uh, new posts in their planning service and other changes that they hope will improve decision-making. In terms of development, it's not yet clear what impact it will have, but we do know from previous experience that for councils, when they've been designated in special measures, that very few applicants actually choose to submit their applications to the planning inspectorate instead of the local authority. And this is because 
many developers like to, uh, you know, who are operating locally like to have a good relationship with the local authority and also because if they make an application to the planning spectrum it then can't be appealed if it's refused so they like to have the option of maybe getting two bites at the cherry yes that's right so we could have the ironic situation of this high profile designation but actually it not actually changing the way in which planning works in the district yes not massively in terms of um well, certainly in terms of how the development sector responds. Okay, John, thanks very much for that. And um, what about what's been going on in Basildon? What can you tell us about that? Yes, so early this month, members of the council voted to withdraw their emerging and very long-awaited local plan from examination due to concerns about the level of greenbelt release in the document. Um, the motion to withdraw the plan was tabled by the borough council's leader, the Conservative councillor, Andrew Baggett, and... Um, it was backed overwhelmingly by councillors with 24, three against and one abstention. So what seems to be the council's reasoning? So the motion said that it was protect the green belts for current and future generations. But during the debate, the council leader said that this focus on green belt protection had been prompted by the publication of the government's levelling up white paper, which he said empowered local leaders and communities to reimagine their local green spaces. And the motion also said that the administration would like to make a new plan which addresses concerns they have about the current plan, which includes the proposals on town centre regeneration and high-rise developments. Okay, but at least part of this is justified by, by the council by saying that they are responding to the agenda laid out by central government. Yes, that's right. Okay, and what happens next? So after the this motion was passed, several days later, the council issued a statement from its monitoring officer that raised concerns about the motion. And it transpires that the council has actually had to suspend the motion to withdraw the draft local plan because the monitoring officer had raised concerns about the legality of the move. OK, so it's not clear whether or not this withdrawal will go ahead. At the moment, no, it's a bit uncertain. So what the monitoring officer has said is he's going to draw up a report. He's going to look into the matter and draw up a report on it. And while he's, until the report is published, then the motion has to be put on hold. Okay, that's interesting. But the whole push to withdraw the plan is part of a sort of wider trend that's going on at the moment, I I believe. Yes, there's been quite a lot of councils that have paused work on their local plans in the last six months or so or have uh, withdrawn them so our readers will probably remember last autumn a couple of councils following the prime minister's speech about which criticized building on green fields um two councils decided to stop work on their local plans in wake of that and since then there have been several more that have abandoned work on their plans or withdrawn them This is despite the fact that there's supposedly a deadline in 2023, is that right, to have your local plan in place? Yes. December 2023, the government said they want all councils to have their local plans ready, otherwise they could face um, sanctions. And recently we had the the chief planner said in her um, newsletter that she encouraged all councils to get plans in place. Yes, I think some people saw that as as a rather sort of mild encouragement now at a time where so many councils are sort of publicly saying we're pausing until we find out what's happening next in in terms of of government policy. Yes, that's right. I think some people, particularly in the development sector, would like the government to be more forthright in um, 
urging councils to um, continue work on local plans. Very interesting. Thank you very much, John. And of course, more details of uh, both of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. But I'm going to have to leave you in this whirlwind of planning information because now it's time for this week's deep dive. Well, Room 106 may be a pretty forbidding place to find yourself in, with reams of paper scattered everywhere, planning decisions, legislation, new policy announcements. But one of the benefits of it is that you can almost always find someone in here who can explain the latest developments, who's been looking at them a bit more closely than, than you have. And I think I can see in the distance a by now familiar figure on our Room 106 visits. It's our regular correspondent, David Blackman. David, hello. Oh, hello, Richard. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. And uh, what have you been doing in here? Ah, oh, well, I've been looking into the uh, the changing of the guard at D-Luck. Ah, oh, of course. Right, you've worked out that's the way to pronounce it. <laughs> well, I, I suppose there are many different ways of pronouncing it, but that's the one I've settled on. Uh, it sounds as good as any. So you're, of course, talking about the arrival of another new planning minister. Yes, yes. Mr Stuart Andrew. And um, why has this change been made, do you think? Uh, well, I think it's got very little to do with housing and planning um, and probably more to do with politics. Uh, Mr Andrew, until uh, a couple of weeks ago, was the deputy chief whip. And as we know, there was a big clear out of the whip's office a couple of weeks ago, a mini reshuffle of government. And as part of that, Christopher Pincher, who was, of course, the housing and planning minister for nearly two years, went back to his old job in the whip's office. The understanding is that he's a very strong loyalist, a very strong ally of Boris Johnson. So Boris wanted him back in the whip's office at a time when he has problems in in his own parliamentary party. So he wanted a, a good, trusted friend there. And he wanted to do a make a change with as little disruption to the wider government as possible. So it was a relatively easy job to uh, do a job swap between uh, Stuart Andrew and Christopher Pitcher. OK, so the impression is that it's more to do with getting Pincher into the whip's office than yes. particularly wanting Stuart Andrew in the uh, housing ministry, or, or is that unfair? Uh, no, I think that's probably fair. I think that's a fairly wide interpretation, yeah, yeah. OK, So what do we know about Stuart Andrews' record on planning matters? Well, like a lot of um, Conservative MPs, uh, particularly backbench Conservative MPs, he uh, he's he's been a vigorous opponent of uh, Greenfield and and indeed Greenbelt development in his uh, constituency, which is Pudsey in West Yorkshire. So kind of leads fringes there. But Probably of more interest is that um, after he was elected in 2010, he worked quite closely with the CPRE about their concerns about the national planning policy framework when it was first being introduced. So his interest and his concerns seem to go a little bit deeper than the the regular MPs. Okay. And do you mean that in the sense that he he sort of worked a bit harder on a a sort of anti-Greenfield development, pro-Brownfield agenda than the average MP? Well probably in the sense that he engaged a bit more deeply than than would typically be the case. Oh, OK. So he was concerned about issues like the five-year land supply and the implications that might have, the potential for greenbelt revisions, and so on and so forth. Oh, and am I right in um, understanding that he kind of opposed the introduction of the requirement for a five-year housing land supply? Um, I'm understanding that he expressed a lot of concern about it. OK, OK, that's interesting. So do we know anything else about his track record on planning? 
No, I think that's probably that's, those are probably the main things which I've picked up so far. OK, OK. And what role do you think he's going to play in the ministerial team? Well, I suppose depending upon how long he's there, of course, is one matter, given that we've potentially got a um, at least a reshuffle. Come, you know, there's the speculation is there's going to be a reshuffle coming up in the another reshuffle coming up in the summer. In the meantime, what we anticipate is that he'll, you know, he's got a very strong Secretary of State, of course, Michael Gove, who has a very very strong agenda. But of course, Michael Gove is concentrating on the levelling up aspect of his brief. So perhaps that might free up some space for. Stuart Andrew to develop his own agenda around the housing and planning aspects of his brief. Also to bear in mind, though, as one of my um, some, somebody pointed out to me that um, he's got some real experts in the department alongside him, Eddie Hughes and Lord Greenhalgh, respectively an ex-housing association chair and ex-local uh, authority leader. They might be expected to have if anything, an enhanced voice within the ministerial team now this reshuffle has taken place. Okay, okay. And um, what are the key things in his in-tray? Well, as the uh, dedicated listener to the podcast will know, of course, the perennial t- topic of whether the uh, the planning white paper. So, you know, do we expect to see a, you know, finally to see a response to the planning white paper? What's the future shape of planning reform? You know, the standard methodology, those are all these sort of, you know, the, the issues that we can expect him to be wrestling with. Um, what's the, the latest on that? Is there any... Um... Is there a feeling that we can still expect him and his colleagues to be bringing forward a standalone planning bill, for instance? Uh, there seems to be sort of a bit of division of, of opinion on that out amongst the expert commentators. Um, some say that the departmental civil servants are still pushing for a standalone bill. Others who sort of deal closely with the department think that's completely dead in the water and that um, what will emerge is a kind of a, a broader portmanteau-type bill probably reflecting the government's wider levelling up and regeneration agenda. Um, and the planning aspects which are left over from the white paper which survive, like probably the, uh, the the infrastructure levy, would be brought into that. Oh, OK. And what's the latest you're hearing about timing? Nothing until May. That seems to be the verdict from virtually everybody. Government is acutely sensitive about the sensitivities surrounding planning reform, particularly in its kind of shire heartlands. So it doesn't really want to sort of create uh, unnecessary controversy before the May local elections, which, of course, you know, revert, you know, performing a neat loop back to the beginning of this conversation, are looking quite dicey for the Conservatives anyway. So the feeling is the last thing they want to do is to provoke a big row about planning before the May local elections. Right. Okay. Okay. Fantastic, David. Thank you very much for that. Is there anything else you particularly wanted to say? Uh, you know, in terms of sort of thinking about what Stuart Andrews' appointment might mean for the sector. No, no. But I think uh, something to be worth bearing in mind in terms of timing. Of course, the Queen's speech. Uh, we expect to see a Queen's speech after May, so that would be the obvious time for the next steps to be taken. Okay. So we'll find out whether there is indeed going to be a planning bill, or whether it's. Um, or whether after all the sort of noise of the last couple of years, it's it's actually just going to be a small element of another bill. Yeah. David, fantastic. Thank you very much. I'll leave you to continue exploring Room 106 and see you in a future week, I hope. Very good. OK, I'll burrow back down. Fantastic. See you soon, David. Bye-bye. So, now to find John again so you can select his reader's choice, the story that might not immediately seem immensely consequential, but seems to have been immensely widely read. Ah, there he is. Hello, Richard. Hi, John. So what's the story from the last couple of weeks that maybe 
attracted more interest than we initially expected? Well, we don't typically cover house builders' quarterly reports in planning, but the second most well-read story of the past fortnight was our coverage of the um, half-year report from Redrow, which is one of the UK's largest house builders. So what was notable for us was the fact the report said, it is clear that the planning system is now at its lowest points for a number of years. So according to the report, resourcing issues within local authority planning teams and the impacts of losing staff to the private sector are being compounded by the existing bureaucratic and unacceptably slow system. And the report said the effect of the failing system is particularly challenging for small and medium-sized builders, and it called on the government to help resolve these issues. And of course, all this chimes with our recent coverage of reports that council planning teams are facing a very hard time at the moment, complaining of huge workloads and diminishing resources. And we know that's a concern that's shared by many in the development sector, because it means that their planning decisions aren't being um, processed as quick as they'd like. Okay, so so nothing new to hear a, a house builder saying that the system's too bureaucratic. I mean, that's the sort of thing that developers always say about planning but maybe quite striking to say that it's at its lowest ebb ever and for them to signpost under-resourcing of local authorities as a cause. Yes, I think it's notable. You're right, it's, it's the language they're using and also the fact that they're citing planning issues as a factor behind the fall in uh, the number of housing completions that they've made. Okay, well, thank you very much, John. I think our work is done. Let's get out of here before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great. That's another fortnight summarised. Yes, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. Our thanks to producer Daisy Chaku from Rethink Audio. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis, specialist bulletins and our quarterly print magazine, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.